Reagan. Lord God, we, we thank you that you have given us this portion of Scripture that we might see clearly who Christ is, that we might see clearly who we who in Christ are and who you have called us to be. Lord, we thank you for the example of Christ, and we pray, Lord, that in the power of your Holy Spirit that we would follow in his footsteps, humbling ourselves as Christ humbled himself for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With John chapter 13, we've now reached the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Apart from a a few words to those who arrest him and to those who examine him, his public teaching is now over. And John devotes the remainder of his gospel account to the ministry of Jesus and to his disciples and the events leading up to the crucifixion and those immediately afterwards. What Matthew and Mark and Luke do in three chapters, John fills eight chapters to do, the entire second half of his gospel account. The emphasis in the remainder of John's gospel account is on the love of Jesus and his loving relationship with his Father in heaven and with his people. Of the 35 times that the Apostle John uses the word love in his gospel account, 32 are in these eight chapters. And this passage serves as the the perfect follow-up to what Jason taught us last Sunday from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the, the love chapter from 1 Corinthians, where Jason exhorted us as as men and women in our marriages to live out the, the service and love that we have been called to in Christ. And that, those, that, that, that call to love is not just for husbands and for wives, but to all of us. To all of us. We are called to love one another with the type of love with which God has loved us. And so in this chapter... Jesus humbles himself in an unprecedented way. And people in our culture have a, a natural affinity. They, they, uh, they appreciate displays of humility, maybe because it's so very rare in our culture. I think that's one of the reasons why people love Prince William and Kate, because of their apparent willingness to, take, to live like common people. They don't have servants, and the media is is full of images of them doing regular, everyday things, like pictures of Kate shopping at a local grocery store. And it's really brilliant publicity. And I think it's very well scripted in order to, to get people back to appreciating the monarchy. But in this chapter, in John 13, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God the Son, takes on the garb of a servant and washes the smelly, dirty feet of his disciples. Never had someone so high humbled himself so low. Now, foot washing isn't really something that's done in our culture. 
course, in, in those times, people wore sandals, and people wear sandals today. But we need to remember the fact that in those days, there, there were no paved streets. We also need to remember that there were a lot of animals around, and that people didn't pick up after those animals. Enough said, people's feet were dirty and smelly. I think you're going to get the picture, but, but, but people's, even today, people's feet aren't, aren't usually their best asset. But, but back then, people's feet were particularly gross. And when, when a guest would arrive at, at the host's house, the, the host would, it was traditional that the host would offer a basin of water for the guests to wash their feet. And if they had servants, the servants, the lowest slaves in the house, would perform that function, washing the feet of the guests. But again, this is not something that, that just any slave would do. This was for the lowest of the slaves. If a Jew had Jewish slaves, a Jewish slave was not ever commanded to wash the feet. It had to be, it was reserved for, for Gentile slaves, those who were lower. But even to this day in the, in the Middle East, people's feet are still considered filthy. You might remember a few years ago when an Iraqi reporter threw his shoes at George Bush. This wasn't just because, uh, he, he, he wasn't just making a statement about, um, about, well, I just don't like you. He was saying, I hate you. This was, was the, the most base form of insult that he could, could offer was to, was to throw his shoes. And the, the, the Secret Service quickly dis, disposed of these shoes and destroyed the shoes because they wanted to, some of the Muslims wanted to actually make, put those shoes in a museum. But there you, you get the idea of, of just, even to this day, that the, 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 the feet were and are considered filthy. Now, I don't know if, if you here have ever washed somebody's feet and, and, or, or had your feet washed by somebody else. And I've, I've, I've been, I've been do, I've done this a few times myself, and I just want to be clear, I'm not advocating a, a new sacrament for the church here. But it was a very humbling experience. And I guess the, the last time that this happened was actually at, at our wedding. Now, it was really, it wasn't that humbling to wash Jane's feet. And I think Jane has very beautiful feet. Because we all have beautiful feet if we're, if we're bringing the gospel. But, but, but at Jane's, at our wedding, I, I washed Jane's feet. Now, for those of you there who, or who heard the, the message that was preached, uh, my good friend Ryan Fullerton preached from Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And, and there, I hope you're familiar with that passage, is talking about the, the relationship that husbands and wives are in is to be a reflection of the gospel as wives submit to their husbands and as, as husbands serve and give their lives for their wives as Christ did for the church. Now, there were a number of unbelievers at that ceremony, and they really didn't like that word submit. In fact, literally, the, the first person to approach us as we walked out of the church was somebody who, who basically accosted us about that, that content, about that content of that message. They didn't like the, the word submit. Just reminded of, of the fact that none of us really like the word submit. None of us want to submit. 
And I've said before that, that women don't like submitting to men, children don't like submitting to their parents, and men don't like submitting to anybody. But the nature of the church is to be one of submission. We're called to submit to one another. And then, there, and then that's in Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians 5.21, and then, then in the rest of, of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lays that out and says what that's going to look like. But people don't like the word submit. Then this, this individual at the wedding actually came up to us again at the, ceremony, at the uh, reception. And, and I explained to them that the, the, the problem that she had um, wasn't even so much with the fact that she, didn't want, that she didn't want women submitting to men, but that she didn't want to submit to God. You can imagine she didn't like that very much. But that is the reality. Anyone who, as Jason shared with us last, last weekend, anyone, any, anyone who says they're not going to submit in this proper sphere to which they've been called to submit, whether it's wives to husbands or children to parents or, or all of us to submit to the church, we're in that area, we are failing to submit to God. And I said to this woman that I think part of the problem here is that you don't really understand the, the type of, of submission, of what's really being talked about here, and the type of leadership that a man is to have in his home. And I explained to her that, that later on in the, in the ceremony that, that I was going to wash Jane's feet as a, as a picture of what I'm called to do, is I'm called to, to lovingly serve and sacrifice for her in the home. Another time that, that I was, was involved in a, in a foot washing service was, was in, was in uh, Papua New Guinea. And uh, we traveled quite a long way to, to get to a, a remote village. And uh, when we, we hiked in, we were, we were, it was just unbelievably humbling the way that they treated us. We, we arrived to, to the people all dressed in traditional clothes and, and the women started singing and they, they'd strewn out fruit and flowers for us to walk over. It was, I, I almost felt like turning around and going back the other way. I felt, I do not deserve this kind of treatment. But then it was capped off as the, as the elders in the village knelt at our feet and washed our feet. It was one of the most humbling things that I've ever experienced. And I just, tears were streaming down my face. I was like, I really don't deserve this. But how much more, how much more would the response of the disciples been to have God himself, Christ the Son, bowing at their feet and washing their feet? This is what Christ did for them. This is what Christ did for us. This is what we are called to do for each other. The foot washing is a living parable of the spiritual cleansing that Jesus brings and also sets the standard of humble service. And of course, these things point ultimately to the cross where those who have been washed who those who are in Christ have been washed by Christ, not merely as an outward washing, but as an inward washing that goes to the very heart. And by becoming a servant, Christ gives us an example of how we are to serve others, and he also gives us the power and the motivation to do so. 
So as we, as we look over this text, in verses 1 to 5, we'll have the washing itself. And then in verses 6 to 11, we'll see Peter's reaction. And then in verses 12 to 17, Jesus explains the washing, providing us with the example and the motivation. So first of all, in verses 1 to 5, we have the washing. Now John, as he does so often in his gospel account, here gives us a time stamp. He tells us that it is, tells us that it is before the feast of the Passover. Now the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe the same events, but they focus on different details. They don't focus on the foot washing. And John doesn't mention the implementation of the Lord's Supper. And some liberal scholars suggest that there's a discrepancy between the Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel, and they focus here on the timing. The Synoptic Gospels describe the Last Supper as a Passover meal, while John explains that Jesus died as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Now, we know that Scripture never contradicts itself, so, so there has to be an explanation. And many authors have proposed all kinds of different theories in order to explain it. But I believe the, the simplest and the most likely explanation for this is proposed by D.A. Carson, who says that the phrase before the feast of the Passover refers only to the foot washing itself and not to the discourses following the meal. And he says that this fits with, with John's purpose in, in developing the Passover theme that's there throughout John's gospel account. And here specifically linking it with the foot washing, which ultimately points to the crucifixion. So remember the link that, that is between the cleansing and the Passover that John gave us back in chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves or to cleanse themselves. So at the time of Christ, the, the, the Passover was seen, and participating in the Passover was seen as participating in a ritual cleansing. And of course, the Passover refers to, back to, to Exodus when, when the, the Jews were to put blood on the, on the doorposts of their homes and to eat, to, to eat the sacrificial lamb so that the destroyer would pass over and would not kill their firstborn when he killed all of the firstborn of Egypt. And all of those things pointed to what was coming, which we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, the crucifixion of Christ. And this event that we see here this morning, this, this washing of the feet, points to the crucifixion of Christ. So when, when we consider these things, we have to, to keep, always keep one eye on the fact that, that Jesus was the lamb that was led to the slaughter, stricken for the transgression of his people, Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7. So the events of chapter 13 take place, as, as R.C. Sproul describes, under the shadow of the cross. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. 
Now we've seen again and again how the Jews had wanted to kill Jesus, but the hour had not yet come. Now it has come. Jesus was about to be crucified. But it wasn't just for the time. The time hadn't come just for Jesus to depart. The time hadn't just come for Jesus to be crucified. But notice that the time had come to de- for him to depart out of this world and to the Father. He was going out of the world, but he was going to the Father. Jesus was leaving. He was going home. We see the the same thing in verse 3. He had come from God, and he was going back to God. Now, Jane and I are about to become parents, Lord willing. And I am extremely excited about becoming a dad. But I have to say that I have some apprehension about the delivery. I'm concerned about what Jane has to go through. But really, I have the easy part in all of that. And, and, you know, I've wondered sometimes why a woman who has gone through the pain of childbirth and labor would ever do it again. I'm really surprised that there are not a lot more only children in the world. But women say that the pain of childbirth pales in comparison to the joy of having a child. And Jesus uses this very analogy in John 16, 21 to to describe how the rejoicing of the disciples after his resurrection will eclipse the anguish that they feel at his crucifixion. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus knows that the pain that he is about to experience is unprecedented. Just consider Gethsemane. And that the anguish that he experiences, he's about, he's about to, to, to face the cross, is so much that he sweat drops of blood. He knows what's coming. He knows not only the physical pain, but he knows that he is going to, to, to feel the, the, the weight and the guilt of sin. He knows that the Father is going to pour out his wrath on him. He knows that for the first time in history that there is going to be separation in the Godhead as the Father turns his back on the Son. But he knew. He knew where he was going. And it made it all worthwhile. What he was doing, he was doing out of love for the Father and out of love for his people. And he knew that there was no other way. He knew that those things had to happen. And he knew that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it as the ultimate fulfillment of the great commandment, loving the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength, and loving us as himself. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved his own who were in the world by choosing them out of the world. John 15, 19. 
His focus was on those that the Father had given him, on those that he loved intimately. He would make the ultimate sacrifice for his own people. He would lay down his life for his own sheep. And John tells us that he loved them, he loved his people to the end. Now, whether John is speaking here temporally, that Jesus loved them to the end of his earthly ministry, or qualitatively, that he loved them to the extreme, the message is the same. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful to the end of of eternity, and Jesus is faithful to the uttermost. But here in the midst of of the beautiful and supremely powerful love of Jesus, we see this starkly contrasted with the hatred of Judas in verse 2. The hatred of Judas in verse 2. Judas was already possessed by Satan. The betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus was satanic, but Judas was still responsible for his actions. He was acting according to his depraved will. But as wicked as Judas was, Jesus still chose him, not for salvation, but as the instrument for the fulfillment of God's plan. In John 60, verse, sorry, 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Beloved, God is sovereign, but he is never the author of sin. God is sovereign, but Judas is still responsible. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, Peter says in Acts 2.23. God is not the author of sin. No one can ever say that God made them sin. Judas can never say that, that, that God made me do it. Judas can never even say the devil made me do it because Judas was complicit. Nobody twisted Judas's arm. He did all that was according to his wicked heart. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says it like this, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby God is never the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. But here we have Jesus. Choosing Judas. Here we have Jesus washing the feet of Judas. The events that are about to take place, this humility and the service that Jesus was about to exhibit, the foot washing, and let alone the crucifixion, 
is grounded in the knowledge of who Jesus was. Jesus was able to do these things because of who he was. And because he knew who he was. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Again, he knew who he was and that he knew the joy that was awaiting him. So he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus was dressed like a slave. Jesus was performing the function of a slave. What a contrast to what we saw of Jesus in John chapter 12, where he's riding into the city and the triumphal entry. Now, of course, even there, his humility was even evident there as he's not riding on a war horse, but riding on a lowly donkey. Even there, his humility is evident. But there, as the, as the crowds are, are, are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're, they're calling out his praises. And here, he's performing the function of a slave. Please turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God himself, equal with God, co-eternal, holding up the universe by the word of his power, the unchangeable I am, washing the feet of his disciples. You know, even for Jesus to take the form of a, of a human being, he would already be infinitely humbling himself, but he went even further. He took the form of a servant, and not just any servant, but the lowest of servants. But even in all of that, he was still God. There, there's a false teaching out there known as the, the canonic theory, which, which says that the Jesus, when he came to earth, emptied himself of his divinity. But even when Jesus was on the earth, he was still fully God. Because he is immutable, one of the attributes of God. In fact, Jesus continually held all of the attributes of God. But when he came to earth, he didn't lay aside his divinity, but veiled his glory. He veiled his glory. From a human perspective, in that moment, he didn't look very much like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But if you understand who God is, that's exactly how he should be. Infinitely humble, infinitely God. Infinitely humble, infinitely God. But this, this, this wasn't an end unto itself. Jesus humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, wasn't, he wasn't setting up, as I said earlier, wasn't setting up some new sacrament. This washing of the feet wasn't salvific. 
it was pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to humble himself even further. Look at Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful of possible deaths. A Roman citizen could not be crucified because it was was considered such a, a lowly death. It was was humiliating. But Jesus is a highly exalted by God. He is given the name above all names. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But on that day, 2,000 years ago, his knee was bowed, looking more like a slave than the son as he washed his disciples' feet. In John 13, verses 6 to 11, we see Peter's reaction, and this reveals the meaning of the washing. So Jesus came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter was incredulous, saying, you are going to wash my feet? In the ancient Near East, it was customary for disciples of a rabbi to act as servants of that rabbi. But, but this is not something that they had done. I'm sure they would have been willing to do that, but it hadn't entered into their minds to wash Jesus' feet. And it never, ever would have entered their mind that, that their rabbi, that the Lord would wash their feet. That was considered too demeaning. It was just, it was, it was incongruous for them. So to a certain extent, you can understand Peter recoiling at the thought of Jesus, who he had once declared as the Christ, washing his feet. But Jesus replied to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. After the crucifixion and the resurrection, he would understand. After he's received the illumination of the Holy Spirit, he would understand. But at this point, he didn't get it. And so now Peter is more emphatic. He says, you shall never wash my feet. He's still responding in the typical impulsive fashion that we're used to seeing with Peter. He's still setting his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. He should have understood. For my thoughts are are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. McGregor observes that that Peter is humble enough to see the incongruity of Christ's action, yet proud enough to dictate to his master. So Jesus answers Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me or no part with me. Now, of course, foot washing is not a requirement of salvation. 
Jesus is pointing here to the fact that it is only those who are cleansed by him, who have had their sin washed away by him, who have fellowship with him. But included here is the, the idea of that of inheritance. It is only those who have been washed by Jesus who share in his inheritance. Hendrickson explains that believers are joint heirs with Christ, but if Christ does not wash Peter, the latter will not share with the former. But again, we see Peter's impulsiveness. He's always a man of extremes. Now he goes to the other end and he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head and my hands. Peter sees his sinfulness. He sees his need of Jesus, but he still doesn't understand. He's still not willing to let Jesus do it his way. So Jesus tells him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Leon Morris explains that the imagery is that of a man going to a feast. The man bathes at home. But then when he walks to the place where the feast is being held, he he doesn't need to have a whole bath again. He just washes his feet. And then he is considered totally clean. And Jesus relates this to the spiritual condition of those who are cleansed by him. This is yet another double meaning typical in John's gospel. Jesus is not just referring here to the external filth on somebody's feet being washed away, but having the filth of our sin washed away. Those who are cleansed by Christ are completely clean. Completely clean. Have you thought lately about all that you have been forgiven of? Every lie, every impure glance, every proud thought, every selfish deed. If you are in Christ, all of those things have been completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. But that's not all. Those who are cleansed by Jesus are permanently clean. Permanently clean. The cleansing is a once-for-all cleansing. Once for all. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Apostle Paul says, Or you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list several types of sin and says, None of the people who do these things, none of the people who do these things will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We who are in Christ have received the washing of regeneration. Every sin that we have ever committed and every sin that we will ever commit has been washed away by the blood of Christ. Though our sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they should become like wool. Isaiah 1.18 Once again, God's ways are not like our ways. The only way that we can be cleansed is through the crucifixion of Christ. 
only God could conceive of his people being washed by blood. But even here in the midst of this beautiful illustration, we again see a stark exception. Turns to, again to, Jesus, to Judas, where Jesus says, you are clean, but not every one of you. And John tells us what Jesus meant, for he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Next week, we'll look at this in more detail, Lord willing, but down in verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So again, Jesus chose Judas, not in the salvific sense, but chose him as a disciple, knowing full well what was in Judas's heart and knowing full well what Judas was going to do. You know, it's really easy to serve people when they serve us back. It's easy to do that. It's easy to be kind to people when they're kind to us. It's easy, easy to show respect to people when they show respect to us. But here, Jesus washes Judas's feet. You can't do that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't serve people who shamefully mistreat us, people who hate us, people who make our lives difficult. We can't do that unless the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. But beloved, we also, we can't even serve people who are nice to us with the right heart, unless the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. Remember what Jason talked about last week with, with the return on investment principle. And so many of us act, we, we do what we do in order to get something back. We maybe even self-righteously are, are kind to somebody, hoping to, to heap hot coals on their heads. But if the Holy Spirit is not at work in your heart, you can't love in this way. What a powerful testimony of the profound love of Jesus. D.A. Carson points out that no right, even if performed by Jesus himself, ensures spiritual cleansing. Washed, Judas may have been, but cleansed, he was not. Nothing external can save you but Christ himself. Good works can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Communion can't save you. Only being washed by the atoning sacrifice of God the Son can save you. And that's the meaning. That's what this pointed to. And finally, in verses 12 to 17, Jesus explains the washing. After washing their feet, Jesus dressed and sat down again and asked them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Of course they didn't understand yet. 
But Jesus here provides the example in verses 13 to 16 and the motivation in verse 17. He says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now again, I'm sure that they would have been willing to wash Jesus' feet. But would they have been willing to wash each other's feet? Not a chance. Luke tells us that right after the Last Supper, a dispute arose among them as to who would be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said that the leader was to be the one who serves. And Jesus did just that. He was among them as the one who serves. Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. And as such, Christ is our example. We are called to the same thing. Now, of course, Jesus as God is infinitely higher than we are. And as going to the cross went infinitely lower than we can. But we are called to this. We are called to set Christ as our example and to walk in his footsteps. Now, of course, we don't go around washing each other's feet anymore. But how would God have you serve one another? What would this look like in your particular context? Husbands, Jason challenged us strongly last week. We are to love and to serve our wives. In, in, what con, in, the, in your context, how can you wash your wife's feet? What would it look like in your home? Maybe taking the time to sit down and ask your wife how her day was. Maybe planning special times together. Making, maybe making efforts to build relationship with her family. We're planning out special times together. We're helping out with the dishes or picking up your socks or closing cupboard doors. What would that look like in your home? How would Jane's laughing because she knows that I don't do that very well. <laughs> what would that look like in your home? Wouldn't that be a beautiful conversation for you to have with your wife husbands to ask them, how can I serve you in our marriage? How can I serve you? And, and I hope that that's not just a conversation you're going to have as, as a one-off and then just tick the box and move on. I hope this is a regular conversation. Husbands, I hope that you will do what we were exhorted to do last week and become students of your wives so that you will just know without her even having to say anything how you can wash her feet in your home. Wives, how can you wash your husband's feet? Maybe by having the house tidy when he gets home or initiating special times with him or baking a special treat for him in the oven so that he gets home to, to a, a, a nice smell of baking in the house. Children, how can you wash your parents' feet? Maybe by cleaning your room or washing the dishes without even being asked to do it or being kind to your siblings? How's that going to look in your home, in your particular circumstance? 
But it's not just in families that this is to take place. This is to take place in our church family as well. Brothers and sisters, how can we wash each other's feet? Maybe by visiting somebody who's sick and can't make it out to church. By praying for one another. By helping somebody with their, their yard or their housework. By offering to look after their kids so that they can have a, have a special night out. You know, maybe in some cases our hearts need to change here. Maybe our hearts need to change. It's, it's not enough just to do those things. It has to come from a heart of, of submission, love to God, and love to the other person. But we can't do that, can we? We, can't, we cannot change our hearts. The Holy Spirit does that. By God's grace, we, we cry out with a heart of repentance, seeking forgiveness for the, the, the myriad ways that we fail in this. Do you think this is, a, this is a prayer that God is not going to answer? If you ask God to help you to love and serve others more, do you think that's not something that he is going to, to joyfully give you? Again, this is not, not a mere outward service. This has to come from the heart. In the Roman Catholic Church, there's an annual mass where the, the Pope washes the feet of 12 men. You can see pictures online of, of Pope Francis washing men's feet. This has been a tradition for centuries. But Calvin says of this, when they have washed 12 men's feet, they cruelly torture all Christ's members and thus spit in the face of Christ himself. Anytime we serve with an outward service that doesn't come from a heart of love to God and other people, it's hypocrisy. And God needs to change our hearts. And whenever we fail, whenever we don't do these things, it's because we don't love God like we should and we don't love others like we should. And brothers and sisters, none of us, None of us loves God like we should. And none of us loves Christ like we should. A few verses later, in John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, my, my hope is to, is to go into more depth in this next week. But this command is not new. The command to love one another goes back to the very beginning. What's new is the way that this was worked out. This sort of thing had never happened before. God had never washed anybody's feet before. God had never gone to a cross for his people before. This is what's new. This is what's new. And beloved, this is what we are all called to do. How did Jesus love us? He loved us by dying for us. Jesus was about to go to the cross, and his sacrifice showed the unfathomable, the unfathomable death 
depth of God's love for us, and it showed us how far we are to go in loving one another. Christ himself is the standard for our love. Christ himself. But you know, I see these things in many people here in this church. I see it. I see, I saw this at camp where so many were just glad to pitch in and to help with meals or, or sweeping a floor or stacking up chairs or helping with children. But it's not just at camp. Week in, week out, the ladies in this church selflessly serve in the kitchen. The young people do dishes. People clean the church on Wednesdays. Beloved, God is glorified in you as you prove to be Christ's disciples by loving one another. But again, keeping in mind that Christ himself is the standard for this. And our complete inability to do this in our own strength. We remember that Christ also provides the power to do it. Beloved, when we, have been, when we were cleansed by Christ, when we were cleansed by Christ we're, once for all, we're not just cleansed to, 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 from past sins. We're cleansed so that we can live a life of obedience to God and to grow in love for God and other people knowing that, that Christ fills up all that is lacking in our love and service. And also having confidence. Remember back in, in Philippians 2, in verse 8, Paul, sorry, verse 6, Paul exhorted us to have this mind in ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think about that. He exhorted us to have this mind which is ours. Have the mind that's ours already. If you are in Christ, this mind, Christ's mind, who though he was God himself, humbled himself by becoming a man, humbled himself lower, by becoming a slave, humbled himself lower, in the crucifixion. Beloved, this mind is ours in Christ Jesus. We have been given the ability. Christ has cleansed us so that we can serve each other from a heart of genuine love for God and love for others. But you know what? That's not even all. Christ also provides the motivation. Verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough just to agree that you were called to serve others. You actually have to do it. Luke eleven twenty-eight. 28. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, it's not enough just to agree with these things. You have to do them. And there is a blessing in doing them. 
There's a blessing in doing them. But again, reminded of, of what Jason shared with us on Friday night, that we have already been blessed. We have already received the most incredible blessing that we will ever receive. We are in Christ. We have received Christ himself. He is our treasure. We, we have, as Jason said, we've already been paid in full. We've already received Christ. So now we're free to pour ourselves out in service of other people. But Jesus says here that there's a blessing. There is an added blessing for those who do these things. Now, I'm not wanting to endorse playing the lottery, but the Powerball jackpot is over $200 million. $200 million. That would be completely and utterly life-changing. If you were to receive that, and not necessarily for the best either, but if you were to receive $200 million, your life would change. Your life would change. But what a lot, of, a lot of people don't consider is the fact that if you had $200 million in the bank, now I'm not really good at math, but, but the way I understand it, there would be, that would be $2 million just of interest, even just in the first year. $2 million just of interest. But again, even, the, even receiving that $2 million is not the focus. If you received it, the focus would be on the $200 million. The focus is on, on what you've already received. We've already received Christ. But there is blessing. There is blessing in obedience. There's blessing from God himself as we are, we are we're blessed with, with a closer relationship with him. As we're, we're blessed with, with a closer relationship with others as we're blessed with, with seeing God glorified, as we're blessed with, with seeing non-Christians converted when they see our example. There is blessing in doing these things. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know the joy that is awaiting you? Do you know all that you've already received in Christ? Let that be your motivation. Out of joy and thanksgiving to the God who gave everything for you. To pour out your life in loving service to one another. Even those who make it difficult.